Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, Hallie's going to tell us about some women that ran the crime world in ye olde London, the 40 Elephants, a vicious and wily gang of shoplifters that ran for nearly a century, and the police really didn't want anything to do with them. Content warning, we'll expect your usual foul language, but that's really all this time. So let's get ready for another Human Exception. not a bummer of a topic for one <laughs> that's a good recovery for what no. <laughs> <laughs> not a bummer um not about a cult but it is about a, a gang <laughs> 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 and i wound up going into victorian london so here we are awesome. um oh yes and we're gonna talk about things i was not expecting um <laughs> So we're going to talk about a group called the 40 Elephants. They're basically the original bling ring, but way better. Um, so if that's, the, if that's the tagline you want, there you go. <laughs> uh, these women, this is fascinating. I thought it would be like a, oh, you know, they operated for a few years in Victorian London. Like I knew that much. And maybe they got caught or busted, whatever gangs in London have always been a problem, especially during the Victorian era. And uh, no, not surprise. <laughs> so surprise. Um, however, there's a pretty common theme here. So for the most part, they had layabout husbands or were recent widows. They had little to no income and a lot of creativity, charm, and daring. And they were skilled at operating in high-end or wealthy areas, and they were also pretty good at running from the law. Uh, <laughs> they learned how to modify their clothes to fit their needs, and then eventually would demand tribute and allegiance from smaller gangs. And they stole, to this day, still an untold amount of goods from noble houses, expensive shops, and more, starting in London and eventually expanding throughout England. Um, this is wild to me. <laughs> what these women did and how they managed to operate. So we get to have a little history lesson here. Um, and pardon me while the cat decides to stare at me. Hello, cat. <laughs> it's not awkward, right? Very creepy when you do that, yes. Uh, so we're going to talk first, to kind of set the scene, about Victorian London. And this is going to involve a map. So I will show you this map here in a little bit. Um, so Victorian London, talking about what industrialization did, uh, specifically to that area, of course, through you know the modern um, world. But when you industrialize so quickly, it usually brings a steep cost. So as factories are built and there are bigger and better machines for textiles and other things that are being made, and then there's a massive demand for those goods because of uh, the wide disparity, uh, not shocking, between the wealthy and the poor, <laughs> and then the press of new and old money. And all of this factored into what would eventually become a dramatically changed Victorian London by about the mid-1840s, 1850s. 
um, somewhere along that line. There was a huge shift early on in the 1800s and the 19th century uh, when both the rural and the urban landscapes were dealing with similar issues around some of the things that you might expect. Sanitation, overcrowded housing, poor diet, low income. But if you look at the English English census by 1851, it shows that urban populations were growing and you have this industrialization kind of leading the charge. There's a need for workers. People don't want to work on farms anymore that aren't producing, particularly in uh, overplanted English soil. And so that means that they can find hopefully better jobs and better wages in London. That, as you would imagine, was not the case. However, it was a lot more dangerous um, because of the machines and just everything else that was going on. Um, the work in these um, factories didn't mean learning skills. So a lot of the times, most of the workforce, which would just be what we would consider blue-collar workforce, the everyday workers, still wound up on the brink of starvation and homelessness, the things that they were trying to avoid by moving to London to begin with. Um, there's a concept that I was actually introduced to when I was looking into this. It's called the sunken sixth. And it's uh, you're so low on the poverty scale that eventually it just leads you into crime because that's the only option you really have at the time. And there are modern. Yeah, it, it's it's specifically to um to london england at the time is this term being used but we have other concepts of it now of course um as we look more at like socioeconomic uh, scales and those types of things so i'm gonna quote here from one of the articles uh because it kind of really makes uh i think the the point really well uh quote the victorian period was a miserable time to be poor assistance was only awarded to people who could earn a living however meager that living might be those who would not or could not work were treated as an underclass whose impoverished state was akin to a criminal offense. Very true. This is, mm -hmm. is going to come up because there's a thing called <laughs> the poor law we're going to talk about. Oh, good. Um, oh, yes. So great. Individuals who found themselves on the bottom rung of the social ladder had very few options available to them. They could subject themselves to inhuman conditions of the local workhouse, or they could take their chances on the streets, finding shelter in slum housing. There were essentially no real support systems available uh, during this time. The few that did begin did exist began to buckle under the exploding population in London that happened around the 1840s and 1850s. You had inflation raising food and housing prices, and then you had the incredible lack of scruples in landlords and business owners who comfortably sat in the middle class of the day. Are so, we talking about the 1800s? Are we talking about today? <laughs> I know, right? I know. I, I was getting very uncomfortable. <laughs> this sounds familiar. This sounds like we've always done these things to people. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so we are going to talk about uh, talk about the poor law. I was not expecting this conversation to go this way. Remember, we're talking about a gang of thieves, but I think you can see the through line here. Um, so there was a poor law that actually started in 1601 in England. Uh, they let it sit for a couple of centuries, you know, uh, just fine. Didn't no need to change that law. It's totally fine. 
the old poor law provided relief in one of two forms. So there was what was called indoor relief, or which was relief inside a workhouse, or outdoor relief, which was relief in the form outside of a workhouse. And that basically means can you work or can you not? That determined what kind of relief you got. Um, uh, and there was no set, uh, this is what you get every month kind of a thing, or this is what you get every week. It could, relief could come in the form of money. It could be a job. It could be food or clothing. And, um, as the cost of building the different workhouses was going up and up and up, they relied more and more on outdoor relief. Uh, and it wound up being the main source of relief in this period. Think of it kind of like disability, but not. And it also applied to children. And uh, the only ones who weren't uh, eligible for it were orphans. What? Yeah. <laughs> Figured this one out for me. You're I know. poor, but you don't have parents. So <laughs> yeah, so suck it. Yeah, it's yeah. like... <laughs> Go back to the orphanage, you dirty orphan. Like, what? <laughs> um, so, uh, and quote, relief for those too ill or too old to work, the so-called impotent poor, I'm quoting here, I swear, um, was in the form of payment or items of food or clothing, basically to keep them from clogging up the streets, essentially. Um, some of the elderly people might be accommodated in parish alms houses, although the, these were usually private charitable institutions. Uh, that's the combination of words that should never be used. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, able-bodied beggars who had refused work were often places of, in houses of correction. Yeah, good. Let's do that. Prison. Um, it worked prison. so good. They kept doing it. And my favorite part of all of this, and when I say favorite, you know I'm being sarcastic, the 1601 law said that poor parents and children were responsible for each other. Elderly parents would live with their children. Basically, if you didn't do this, you would get no support. So this is where well, we are. That law wasn't reassessed until 1832. Like 200 so years? 200 plus years. Yep. Jesus. Yep. So you can only imagine how mismanaged and just crap all of this was. Um, eventually, uh, an amendment, an amendment, they didn't even pass a new one. They just put it, made a new amendment. Uh, the amendment to the poor law was made in 1834. And it set up this idea um, that parishes that were originally enacted and set up under the 1601 Act needed to be under centralized control. Okay. Good try. Uh, I still think you fail. <laughs> because Just make sure that one person is in charge of it so that we can minimize yep. the drifting, but also maximize it for one person. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's it, wrong. exactly. Yep. Um during this time there was of course this like deep impression of poverty and it was only made worse by this amendment. So this amendment had a massive cultural impact in London and England, mostly in London. And the essential idea that everyone kind of just had was that those in poverty didn't have enough self-restraint and work ethic. Does that sound familiar? Um, Pull up by your like, bootstraps. Exactly. Um, 
So this idea that the poverty-stricken were selfish layabouts with no mooring in life is an attitude that we see even today. And it also brought about the image and impression of the workhorse, uh, workhorse, wow, workhouse that we see in art. I know the same kind of, kind of, um, that we see in art and books from that time period, including the works of Charles Dickens. So I have this really amazing thing that I did not know existed. I'm going to introduce you to the Charles Booth poverty map. Oh, this is kind of amazing. I had no idea that this existed. Um, so it had a massive influence on politics and society in the late 19th century in London. So this is after the amendment to the poor law is made. And this man, Booth, Charles Booth, who was a businessman, he actually had, from everything that I could tell, he was actually very deeply concerned by social problems um, and wasn't just, you know, using it as a resume builder, um, <laughs> essentially, you know, or making himself look good. Uh, he also, quote, recognized the limitations of philanthropy and conditional charity in addressing the poverty which scarred British society. Without any commission other than his own, he devised, organized, and funded one of the most comprehensive and scientific social surveys of London life that had ever been undertaken at the time. Wow, way ahead of his time. Fascinating. Yes. Yeah, so here's the link. It is active. You can actually go in and zoom around on this thing. So the uh, the Charles Booth um, archive, uh, and it'll take a minute to kind of pull up because the poverty map of the late 1800s is overlaid over current London. Mm -hmm. So when you look at this, and this is incredibly detailed, it's wild. It's fucking wild, oh, yeah. Yes. It's huge. This is so cool. And you can use the slider at the bottom. Um, to go between the booth map and the modern map. There's a legend down there. So every street is colored. It has either black, uh, it has a black line through it for the lowest class, was considered basically gang territory. You have uh, spots where it's like super dark blue, or basically would be poverty-stricken areas. Then it goes up to poor, mixed, fairly comfortable, middle class and upper middle class and upper middle and upper classes where the wealthy areas are. And you can see how truly segmented it is in a lot of ways. And so it's interesting like how much like there are like even in the rich parts of town. There was a lot still of little pockets of like yeah. Yep. Of the lowest class. And it's like right next to like you know like well to do people. And then it's like here's this one like building question mark. That's just, you know, not good. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Yep. It is. This is one of the most fascinating things I've come across in a long time. And I was like, I did not know about this, but I am in all the way because this guy really did. I mean, they, they essentially just, they went door to door over the course of many years. Um, so, um, the maps were made in 1889, and you can see that not much, if anything, has improved since the 1834 amendment, because that amendment to the poor law was meant to, like, help people get up out of poverty. And clearly that didn't work too well, because there are a lot of poverty areas still on this map. Um, lost my spot. There we go. So um, there were some things, too, that... Uh, this map actually managed to do that was positive, which was a good thing. That's what he was aiming for. 
Uh, it had a positive effect on the way poverty was viewed. More financial support was given to businesses to hire more workers. Children from impoverished families were offered free school meals. A little note, child labor was, wasn't made illegal in England until 1933. But an 1833 act made it illegal for children under nine years old to work outside the house. So there you go. Well, that's good. I guess. Progress. <laughs> yep. Um, things were getting better toward the end of the 19th century, but those already suffering were largely left to their own devices, which means that crime flourished. And if you didn't go to the workhouse, you likely found your own way around or joined a gang. And this included women. So we'll get back to that because we're going to start talking about the horror that our workhorses, workhouses, I said it again, in the uh, <laughs> in Victorian London. I also have a couple of stills from these maps, from the original booth maps. If y'all want to see these, they're pretty cool. Um, yeah. And you can find these. They're on the they're on Wikipedia. Um, so here's one section. I just kind of grabbed so you can kind of see in better detail. Mm -hmm. um it's fascinating my file is too powerful my thing that i also that i find super fascinating is how well that map lines up with modern like yeah satellite made map <laughs> yeah i know right they he boots spared no expense on on this the people he hired the cartographers the census takers and it, it, yeah, it, it's really, Quality, and there's a ton yeah. of stuff on his website. Like you can go into Charles Booth's London and and go in and look at his notebooks and and learn more about him. He's a really interesting. He was a genuine person who seemed to really want to try to help, which I think says a lot. Mm. Um, so workhouses in Victorian London were pretty much as bad as you might expect, or you might have gotten from literature written during the day. Uh, they were crowded, unsanitary. There was little to separate transient workers from families that became permanent residents, and there were a lot of those because it was either work or go on the street. They didn't really have a choice. Uh, transient workers were also thought to be a bad influence on the more, quote, stable workers, and thus bringing in a violent criminal element and potentially corrupting the deserving poor. That's a quote. Wow. <laughs> The deserving poor. That's what nice, a right? fucking phrase. Yep. <clears throat> gonna throw up in your mouth a little bit. Um, no one wants to work these days. Yeah. Gosh. Uh, Everyone just wants a handout. Yeah. You mean food? What? <laughs> like, I don't want to have to struggle every moment of every day. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. Right. Uh, there's something really clear in the records from the time, and it's that more and more women were forced to go to workhouses to keep from living on the street. A lot of these women were, quote, deserted wives, widows with young children, and unemployed servants. So with no good choices, a lot of women either uh, went into the workhouse, which was, again, not great, or they started stealing. So this is where we're at. <laughs> yeah, these are your options. <laughs> Yep, pretty much. And you know what? These women were good at it because no one suspected them. And they got really good at it. Um, so this is and it's so funny that I, I went all the way back. I was like, oh, it's just a gang of the. Oh, no. A lot of them were like 
abandoned wives and they had little kids and oh and then you know and then it led me into all this and that's how i found charles booth so there we go uh all right i have this cool drawing of a 19th century female shoplifter just kind of fun um to see how it's portrayed what she's doing <laughs> with her skirts is a pretty accurate description i love the guy and in the background that's like oh my god i can yeah. see her ankles <laughs> i can have I can can see her undergarments. Oh, uh, yeah. So it's kind of fun. Um, so the Forty Elephants. The Forty Elephants was a gang of female shoplifters that operated from at least 1873 to the 1950s. And no idea. 80 Amazing. years minimum. <laughs> That's yeah. And they. They pulled basically a Dread Pirate Roberts. They would pass down their secrets to the next generation, usually a younger family in the gang, their kids, cousins, that kind of thing, and also then younger uh, gang members, allowing them to, quote, keep it in the family. Mm. <laughs> there isn't an exact start date that's been found in records, although 1873 comes up quite a bit. And there's even police records that suggest that they were operating in some way, even back through the late 1700s. Yeah. I was like, damn, okay. <laughs> and this is what is so interesting. There's a lot that's been written on the, the male-led gangs that were operating in Victoria, London at the time. But it's just not enough focused on these women who were complete badasses and also crazy violent at the same time. I was like, oh, oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um. So there's just tons of gangs operating in London at the time. Some of them were even running parts of London uh, long before the 40 elephants became official. And there were rings of shoplifters and thieves, all of that, like you might expect. It's very likely that some of the original members of the 40 elephants got their start earlier than 1873, like we suspect. Um, some of them were part of what was the male-dominated elephant and castle mob. And you can go look these folks up, too. They operated out of a bar called Elephant and Castle. Hence the name. There you go. We Absolutely. have an elephant and castle here. Are you fucking serious? Oh, my <laughs> yep, God. We do. <laughs> so it's, it was an English pub, like, a block away from where we used to work. Holy fuck. Oh, my God. Well, now we have to go. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's it's not a bad place to go, actually. Yes. Yeah? Oh, my gosh. Amazing. Uh, so with all of this happening, um, some of the women in the Elephant and Castle mob decided that they didn't want to just be accomplices anymore. But, of course, because when you do that, you get a smaller cut of the take because they had a smaller role. And they were like, nah, fuck this. Uh, there was an expert thief in the group. Called, uh, her name was Mary Carr, and she decided to form her own little her little offshoot. She, you know, she's a girl boss. She's out there. Bitch boss, you mean? Bitch boss, she's doing her thing. She was very good at what she did. She would walk into a place and rob it blind, and they wouldn't catch her. She was kind of amazing. Um, I know I was like, all right, girl, you can, yeah, you go steal them gems from them wealthy people. You go get it. Yeah. Fuck uh, those guys. Yeah. Fuck those guys. So she starts the 40 elephants and she managed to wheedle the leader of the elephant and castle gang pro into promising protection to the 40 elephants for a cut of their earnings. Fair enough. Uh, they started out shoplifting. 
they knew how to do it with a Mary's expertise. Uh, they'd steal expensive items like gems, jewelry, furs, and fashion items, and then resell them. So their goal was never to wear what they stole, of course, easier to get caught that way, but purchase what they wanted with the earnings they made fencing their stolen goods. Um, yeah, you she, can't really eat gemstones or anything. <laughs> exactly. It's like, okay, I'm going to buy bread with this, and then I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to buy them boots I saw. Like, I get it. Uh, so Mary was considered the first queen of the 40 elephants, and she was an expert in what was called hoisting. She'd steal the goods, then fence them, and she knew all the good fences. She also encouraged her female thieves to occasionally, maybe to get what they wanted, seduce and blackmail influential men and con their way into noble household jobs to loot goods. You know, like a, under the guise of a maid. Get it, girl. Um, yeah. Hey. She also laid the groundwork for the second wave of 40 elephants, which began around 1916 with the rise of a woman named Alice Diamond. Alice Diamond. There's a name. We are gonna talk about this bitch. I love her. Here she is. That's her. <laughs> I love her. The, the I coat's love her. great. It, it Amazing. Everything is so good. Uh, she was uh, the Prohibition and Wartime Queen. So she stood five foot nine inches in a time when the average height of a man was five foot six. She was <laughs> young. Yeah, she was she was she was tall. She was tall and she was built too. She could, yeah, we'll talk about the people she punched. Um <laughs> A lot of punching. Uh, she was young, brash, and had first been arrested at the age of 17, but had been a prolific shoplifter for most of her teen years. Uh, as a note, I had to write this down. Uh, during her first arrest, it took three policemen to hold her down. She was 17. Yes. I was like, oh my god, okay. Well, there you go. And like her last name, her moniker, you might suspect that she liked diamonds. She did. She liked them so much that she would wear diamond rings on every finger of both hands as makeshift brass knuckles. Fuck yeah. <laughs> you could fuck a motherfucker up with some diamonds. You could take an eye out. Yeah, easily. Easily. Uh, she hated the police and was wildly outspoken. So I have a, a couple little tidbits here in quote. So, quote, she reportedly once said police forces are set up by governments to stop others getting a share of what they've got. <laughs> yep, I, I know. I was like, OK, yep. Her criminal tendencies were fueled not only by the poverty of her childhood and her father's lifetime of petty theft, but also her aspirations. Alice wanted much more than money for food and lodgings. She wanted glamour. This was the era of silent film when the first cinema heroines, such as Pearl White and The Perils of Pauline, were enticing young women to dream of romance and adventure. So this is the time period that Alice is growing up in. Um, she was shrewd, cunning, could be pretty violent, and she took on the role of the leader of uh, as the leader of the 40 elephants after Mary Carr passed on the role. Mary was still in the picture. She just wasn't interested in going around in, in her older age and stealing anymore. Um, so Alice Diamond had this vision and she had the leadership skills to pull it off. And even the older thieves in the gang fell in line. Under her guidance, the 40 elephants, quote, became known for their decadent excess and trendy, expensive attire. This also drew media attention, which Alice 
fucking loved. <laughs> she loved it because they, quote, threw the liveliest of parties and spent lavishly at pubs, clubs, and restaurants. Their lifestyles were in pursuit of those glamorous movie stars combined with the decadent living of the 1920s aristocratic flapper society. They read of the outrageous behavior of rich, bright young things and wanted to emulate them. So, and she grew the, of course, grew the gang, like massively grew it. <laughs> but she did some really smart things. Uh, she reorganized them by splitting them into cells. So by doing this, they could pull off simultaneous robberies and then divide uh, police attention and send them running the opposite direction, which they did quite a bit. The police hated getting calls about robberies during this time because they just figured it was the 40 elephants and they weren't going to get any of Not this shit again. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, My like, nose hasn't healed from the last it. time. <laughs> She showed uh, the women in the gang how to alter their dresses, adding in secret pockets and flaps to assist in swiping goods. And then what they would do is they would hand those items off to accomplices and then dash off in high-speed car chases with the police. <laughs> <laughs> and high-speed during this time was not real fucking fast, but still. <laughs> I love that idea of like, you come back here, honk, honk, and they're driving like 20 miles an hour. <laughs> Oh, my God. Uh, so and they did. They used cars, which was very much a new thing for really any of the gangs. And by doing so, they were able to expand their radius to towns outside London, which was uh, uh, probably a good thing because Alice and some of the other faces were getting to be real well known. <laughs> Uh, so I wanted to talk about the hoisters code as we kind of wrap up some of this, because this is where uh, we start to see a, a shift again. Alice is getting older. She's getting more aggressive. And she um, made up this code, which was supposed to um, open the democratic manner in which they operated, which was equal division of money from heists, caring for family members of anyone in the gang who got arrested, always providing alibis for each other. I was like, all right, all right, all right. The problem is that she required absolute fealty and all of her rules were strictly enforced and she wasn't afraid to toss off anyone who threatened the stability and the lives of those in the gang. Um, Diamond even got rid of her most trusted accomplice, a, a woman named Maggie Hughes. So we're going to talk about Maggie for a second because Maggie and Alice were like two sides of the same coin. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, so wild. Maggie was married to a trusted fence the gang used, and she was uh, just opposite in every way. She was under five feet tall, she was 4'11, uh, tiny build, tattoos on both arms, and a quote, psychotic temper. Plus, she was almost always drunk. <laughs> Amazing. So she was a dwarf. I, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she was really uh, brazen and bizarre. She had a flair for it. She drove a Ford V8 car with a periscope on the roof so she could spot police before they saw her. <laughs> Amazing. I love that so much. I love this image of this tiny woman on the roof of her car being like, yep, here they come. Let's go. <laughs> um, and as the 40 elephants became well known in London's West End, they began to target stores across the country. In their powerful cars, it was easy to raid Bath, Brighton, Bristol, and the Midlands and get back before midnight to South London 
uh, where they stored their bounty. Problem is that Maggie, with her periscope car, <laughs> kept getting arrested. And eventually Alice Diamond got tired of it and her outburst. So she ousts Maggie from the heist and put her out of the public eye for a while to allow all of that attention to cool down. Yeah, um, Periscope wasn't, like, wasn't working as well as she planned. Yeah, she just, she, I think it was the drunk. <laughs> I think it was Fair. drunk. Fair. And pretended yeah. to start bar fights. <laughs> um, but at the same time, Alice was kind of... Uh, I don't want you to think that she was just like, yeah, badass, yes, queen. She also had a bit of a temper. Um, and this is where that fealty to the hoisters code comes in, because there was an incident in 1925 when a younger member of the gang broke one of Alice's rules and married her lover without Alice's permission. No. And Alex, yeah, I was like, that's a little possessive. Alrighty then. Um, Alice turned the gang on her. So this is a, a quote from one of the reports. On the night of December 20th, 1925, Alice, Maggie, and most of the gang gathered at the Canterbury Social Club near Lambeth's New Cut Market and drank themselves into a fighting mood. Armed with <laughs> bottles, stones, and lumps of concrete, they marched to Marie, this young woman's, lodgings, smashed their way in, and held Marie at gunpoint while her husband was beaten senseless. Yeah. Whoa. That escalated okay. quickly. That escalated really quickly. Yep. So I wanted wow. to I wanted to draw attention to that because I, I didn't want, like I said, I didn't want everyone to just be like, yes, go get it. They were they could be violent when they wanted to. Um police had to break up what eventually turned into a riot and arrested the gang. Alice was jailed for 18 months. Maggie, who incited the riot, got 21 months. So oh. uh, Alice is now in jail. Uh she can't lead the 40 elephants from jail. And this is where a woman named Lillian Rose Kendall, or the bobbed, bobbed-haired bandit, took over. And I'm going to give you a picture of this woman, because Everybody holy shit. Bobbed. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, my mm -hmm. God. Wow. I love that girl in the front. That's yep. fierce. Yep. The Cupid bow painted lips. Yep. Mm-hmm. Very Betty Boop. Bow. Yep. Very Betty Boop. Finger wave hair. It's amazing. Um, so she was a smash and grab expert who also excelled in getaway driving and often uh, liked to use car to smash through jeweler's window. <laughs> Just like, could you imagine seeing that <laughs> driving through your jewelry store and you're like, yep, we got robbed by the bobbed haired bandit. Love Not it. really very subtle. <laughs> nope. No, subtlety basically went out the window once Alice was kind of out of the picture. Um, Lillian winds up ruling the 40 elephants for years, but Alice doesn't fade away. After she's released from her 18-month stint in prison, she eventually runs a brothel in Lambeth and acted as a godmother figure to the new generation and always willing to pass on tips for shoplifters. So Alice's story ends when she, um, well, not, doesn't end, but she was one of the few people who refused to evacuate London during World War II and eventually died uh, in 1952 at the age of 55 from multiple sclerosis. Uh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, I know. So as Lillian's kind of running the gang and the society is changing so quickly, eventually the 40 elephants fizzle out sometime in the 1950s. There's not much on Lillian's kind of 
time on the throne, I guess we'll say. Um, because most of the focus has always been on Alice because fucking look at her. Like, <laughs> how could you not? Um, so even though they fizzled out sometime, you know, mid 20th century, their legend is still a big part of London history. And I really think it's a testament to what people will do when forced to fend for themselves without society support. And while male-led gangs rose and fell, the 40 elephants lasted for decades and cemented themselves as both folklore and criminal royalty. They were flashy, fascinating, and let no one rule over them except the iron or diamond-bedecked fist of Alice Diamond. I do not understand why there aren't more books about these women. Yeah, no kidding. Fascinating. Uh, so you've now been introduced to the 40 elephants, Alice Diamond, a, a very drunk woman named Maggie who beat a dude with a piece of concrete, and uh, a woman who drove her car through jeweler windows, and also Charles Booth, of all things. I still love the Periscope car. The Periscope yeah. car, I laughed for a solid minute when, after I read that. I was like, that is... That is some it sounds wacky... like a cartoon thing. It doesn't sound it's, like oh, something yes. someone would a- actually yeah, it's have like an acme thing. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I just I think these women are fascinating. I would love to I would love to learn more about them. Um fuck, I'd I'd write a book about them. Like I think this is such a ripe, fascinating bit of history, especially when you start pulling in, you know, the the deep, deep poverty issues that uh, were in London at the time and are, still exist. I mean, that stuff is generational. It doesn't just fade away. Mm-hmm. So anyways, that's that's me, the 40 elephants. There you go. That's great. I love it. There needs to be a movie about this shit or like a TV show, like an Seriously. HBO show. Seriously. There, there's an episode of Murdoch Mystery where they have like a very similar kind of girl gang who goes and have like elaborate heists and through toronto and you have they were like trying to get caught like trying to catch them toronto yeah if if you've never seen murdoch mysteries it's uh it's a it's a cbc show and it's about a toronto detective and um he you know solves all these but he runs into like famous people throughout history like he is friends with tesla and talks to um Samuel Clemens and it's wild. Uh yeah, so like I like to watch it cuz I love it's like silly and kind of lighthearted. Um and then it's a period drama that I love. But then like, you know, then you run into stuff like this where I'm I'm pretty sure that that episode was inspired by the 40 elephants. I think they had a name but I don't remember what it was. Um oh, wow. But yeah. That's so interesting. Okay. Okay. But someone give them their due. They're so interesting. <laughs> Yes, we need more. Need more. Need more material on badass <laughs> mafia girls. <laughs> well, that was awesome. So good. <laughs> My brain died. Sorry. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think we're. I think we're. I think we're all sad. <laughs> 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 Oh my goodness. Well, there we go. That's a there we go. Another uh-huh. one down.
And that's it for this week. Next week, I tell you about the rebel biologist, Simona Kosak, who moved into a cabin in a national forest and lived there for 30 years studying and caring for the wildlife, with a wild boar and a terrorist crow at her side. Courtney is going to tell us about parthenogenesis, a form of asexual reproduction that can be found throughout the insect and reptile kingdom. As always, links, pictures, and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. To keep up with all things exceptional, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at The Human Exception. If you have a story you want us to cover and want to tell us that we're wrong or do you just want to say hi, you can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And to get out of the fun, come join us on our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend.